So I'd love to understand, at least at a high level, your process and going from insight to execution or insight to product. Sure. At a high level, I think the people that are best at their craft are people that are inherently curious and engaged and want to learn and be better at that craft. The people that are worse at their craft are people that don't want to do that thing, that craft. It's if I told, if I gave you a shug, shovel and told you to dig a hole and you had no interest in digging a hole, you wouldn't get very far. You'd be burnt out quickly. But when you look at some of the greatest athletes and musicians in the world, the best are ones that just, regardless of the accolades or the money, they just love what they do. And when you love what you do, when you're passionate about it, I believe you will be the best at it. And so for me, when it comes to really starting any business, I think the curiosity is the thing that gives me that passion and drive. Welcome to Worthy for 30, a podcast hosted by Eric Tash. Eric is a brand marketer who spent time in both the startup and corporate worlds. Throughout his career, he's come across remarkable leaders who set clear examples for how to do good and give back. Eric sits down with some of the most sought-after entrepreneurs and C-suite executives to discuss how they're able to unlock deeper meaning in their work by infusing their core fundamental values. Worthy for 30, where doing good and doing well meet. Welcome to another recording, another podcast, another episode of Worthy for 30. I'm very happy to have on a friend, former coworker Dan Reich, who I met when we were working at Buddy Media. He and his, his co-founder sold their company back in 2011 to Buddy Media. I was working in sales, he the entrepreneur, and we hit it off. We worked together and we've stayed in touch ever since. And being the entrepreneur that he is, he didn't just rest his laurels on, okay, I sold Spinback. Buddy Media was sold to, uh, eventually sold to Salesforce. He went on to some tremendous things and I'll let him bring you up to speed. So Dan, welcome to the show. Yeah, good to see you, Eric. Glad we're rocking the red Big Ten hats as well. Oh, good yeah. Style. So, good style. And just for the listeners, I was wearing my IU hat before we got on, and Dan, being the Wisconsin, proud Wisconsin graduate, had to at his school as well. So love having the Big Ten energy on the show. So Dan, before you just go into what you're up to and what you, and your path to what you've been working on currently, just for your understanding and for the listeners, Worthy for 30, the reason why I started this podcast I've come across some remarkable business leaders like yourself. I've had our friend Jeff Ragavan on as well. People who are who pride themselves on doing good while doing well, really being able to unlock deeper meaning in their work through infusing their core fundamental values. I love to for you to just let the listeners know what you've been up to. And then in addition to that, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, happy to. Son, your intro on me as you stated just a few minutes ago, started actually many companies. I think I've started over 20 companies. Uh, most of them did not work, but a few of them have. More recently, more notably is the one you mentioned. A few buddies of mine from college at Wisconsin started a company called Spinback, which helped online brands and retailers measure how much money they made from Facebook. We merged that with Buddy Media, which we then sold to Salesforce. And after that time, I left and tried to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and what would be next. During that time, I ended up doing the angel investor slash venture capital thing for about a year and a half, working out of a family office on the Upper East Side called Great Oaks Capital. Very informal. We would look at deals together, evaluate them together. And if we liked them, would structure unique, mutually beneficial deals together. And 
that was the time when I really stumbled into what became Tula. Basically, I started on a path to do another SaaS e-com business, reconnected with all of my old retail and brand customers, one of them being QVC. And I actually wrote a whole blog post about the origination and beginnings of Tula. But in short, they wanted to prove they could launch brands digitally, didn't know how. And I had an opportunity to launch my own beauty brand with the third largest retailer in the world at the time. And that felt like a unique opportunity. And just my curiosity couldn't, couldn't let me let go of that opportunity. So I chased that down and, and, and Tula was born, worked on that for a few years. We ended up selling that in February of 2022 to Procter & Gamble at the time of sale. The business was doing about 150 million in sales. And during that journey of building Tula, even though it was doing really well along the way, I remember being in a quote product development meeting, reviewing lab samples and trying to determine as a group, if we wanted to use like citrus or lavender and I'm smelling creams in my hand and I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing in this room? <laughs> There's probably much better people, more qualified and excited, frankly than me to, to lead a company like this. So I ended up, we were building out a leadership team. I ended up promoting my, my then chief operating officer to my role as CEO. I fired myself and went on a journey to start a new software company, which is what, what became of troops. And so the thesis behind troops was every company on earth needs a way to manage information on their customers, their revenue, their pipeline. We know, and you and I know, more than most know that category to be CRM. We also know Salesforce to be the leader. And when you look at the humans that have to use this software day to day, it's not always the easiest thing to do often. I remember in a previous life, my manager came to me and said, Dan, if your team doesn't update Salesforce by five o'clock every Tuesday, they're fired. And that just seemed a little bit insane. And when we started Troops, as we started to think about that problem set again, at the time, six of the top 10 most used apps in the world were messaging apps. And we thought, man, what if you could interact with your systems of record, your CRM, your databases that you use to run your company, much in the same way you text with a friend or your parents? What if you could have a messaging first interaction and experience with CRM? And so we started building a product that quite literally integrated Salesforce with this enterprise messaging application and that application was called Slack. So much like Buddy Media, we were building power tools on top of this fast growing consumer thing called Facebook. We were building similar power tools on this fast growing consumer-ish, but enterprise thing called Slack and fast forward. Salesforce acquired Slack for almost $30 billion. And they were really excited about our vision and domain expertise on the space, the customers we've had and so forth, and decided that mutually together we could help accelerate that shared vision. So then in July of 2022, we were acquired by Salesforce and now we're helping to accelerate the vision we had years ago. So I am currently at Slack helping to lead that charge with the team and others. And I am continuing to do a bunch of angel investing and Calls like these. <laughs> so again, no, no, no two days are the same. It sounds like because again, you're, you have your job, but you're you're working on Slack, creating that conversation between Slack and Salesforce, and again that, that and, and executing against that vision. But you're also angel investing, mentoring, advising other startups. You said you've started, founded, 
or helped create 20, 20 businesses or 20 startups, which is, which is amazing. One thing that you did say is curiosity. And it's funny because as I, because you're not the first entrepreneur to be on the show. And I've had Craig Dubitsky, who is the founder of Hello Products, which sold to Colgate or also earlier in, in 22, I think, or the end of 21. He also had this curiosity similar to you where it's okay, I'm in the aisle of a, of a pharmacy and why is the leading toothpaste or the, the, looting, the leading dental healthcare companies or brands using fright or delight to get consumers? Isn't there like a middle way or middle path to reach the consumer, get 100% of consumers because 100% of consumers use toothpaste and toothbrushes? And he took that curiosity insight and created Hello Products. How do you leverage that curiosity to start a business? Just fascinated by you had this idea about conversation about, hey, if you don't update Salesforce by five o'clock on Tuesday, you're fired. And you're thinking about, okay, there has to be a way that we can get these two systems to talk to one another. So I'd love to understand, at least at a high level, your process of going from insight to execution or insight to product. Sure. At a high level, I think the people that are best at their craft are people that are inherently curious and engaged and want to learn and be better at that craft. The people that are worse at their craft are people that don't want to do that thing, that craft. It's if I told, if I gave you a shovel and told you to dig a hole and you had no interest in digging a hole, you wouldn't get very far. You'd be burnt out quickly. But when you look at some of the greatest athletes and musicians in the world, the best are ones that just, regardless of the accolades or the money. They just love what they do. And when you love what you do, when you're passionate about it, I believe you will be the best at it. And so for me, when it comes to really starting any business, I think the curiosity is the thing that gives me that passion and drive to just turn over stones and figure out, could I do this? And could we do that? And what if this happened? And what if we did it that way? And that inquisition of what if, or why not us? makes the journey worth it, makes it exciting. And it just so happens that in the game or sport of business, if you ask enough correct questions and answer them correctly, the scoreboard just happens to be the things you read about, acquisitions, money, and so forth. But I think if you're not passionate genuinely about something, you just will not chase it down and you'll not be the best. And so that curiosity and that passion is really what fuels, I think some of the best entrepreneurs today. Okay. Is, is there an entrepreneur role model or some, or not hero, but someone you look to and you point to, like, this is someone that I like to uh, look after or not look after, uh, like to follow or take inspiration from? Yeah. I think some of the obvious ones are ones that stick out for me. So I think about someone like Elon Musk. Here's a guy that challenged the status quo on some of the biggest and scariest problems of our time and has done it. it he, he effectively invented the electric vehicle market, private, private space flight. He's now attacking and rethinking what it means to have civil, hopefully civil and public discourse with Twitter, boring company. So that's an example of someone that challenges first, thinks about per, first principles and challenges the status quo and I think about someone like Steve Jobs as well, who was famous for thinking different and challenging the status quo. I think that is fundamentally what it takes to do something great, mm -hmm. not just in entrepreneurship, but really in anything. So, you know, those are just a few. 
So in, in terms of the curiosity, the, the convergence of curiosity and passion, and then what if, why not us? What is that first step to testing why not us? Or what if we did it this way? What would, you, what would your recommendation or advice, not just for an entrepreneur, but anyone who, let's say, is trying to change a habit, what would you suggest? I think there's multiple ways one can go about being an entrepreneur or starting a company. So some paths that I think about, one example is the person that has the classic problem that's plagued them their whole life. And they will not, they cannot sleep unless this problem is solved and that itch is scratch and they're obsessed over it. So that's one path. And they just go out on this mission to fix that thing. That's one path. Another path is somebody probably more like me, that's much more opportunistic in nature that see, can see maybe a few different problems, but perhaps can see a unique way to tie those things together. That's interesting and perhaps different. So just for me, as an example, even with let's use Tula as an example, I was never in the beauty industry, but I saw a unique opportunity to launch a brand in a digital environment that I knew pretty well and a digital partner that I knew pretty well. I didn't know anything about beauty, but I became friendly with my now partner on many things who started a, was one of the co-founders of Baden Brown Cosmetics, whose name is Ken Landis. And so I got to hear his background and his stories of beauty. And so in that example, marrying one plus one equals three, that to me seems intriguing. That's the opportunistic path. There's probably others, but those are the first two that come to mind. And, you know, if there is an entrepreneur, entrepreneur out there that has a thesis for a problem solution or business or idea, I think the best way to start unpacking that to see if it's viable or worthy of your time and energy is to just go out and talk to people, talk to, talk to potential customers, talk to other entrepreneurs that have been in a similar domain or space that might have unique insight, just literally act as a sponge and consume as many data points as you can. And from there, the idea is to try to filter out the good ideas and feedback from the bad ideas and make a decision around, okay, I've got some info. I have a good enough framework and understanding of the problem solution in space, competitors, whatever. Now I can make the decision if I should move to the next step. Next step to be perhaps forming a company, giving it a name. And then a next step from there could be recruiting people to help you, building the team, bringing capital and so on. But I think Step one is really to make sure that if you're going to go on this journey and climb that mountain, the mountain is worth climbing. There's many people, and I've been guilty of this too, where you set out to go build a business or solve something. And it turns out that you're, you are just climbing a very small mountain and you get to the top and you're like, now what? An example would be like, if you wanted to invent a shoe company for left-footed people only with three toes and <laughs> that was the shoe and product right. you'd build, you wouldn't have a very big market. And so I've seen many people do an equivalent of something like that. So you just want to make sure that if you're playing in a sandbox, it's a big enough sandbox and the juice is worth the squeeze. Gotcha. And the juice is worth the squeeze, big enough sandbox. And also getting to a point where it's, okay, now you got to execute. You've spoken to a couple of people, you've answered some crucial or vital questions. Now it's all about taking that, formulating that, you know, that's, or synthesizing what you heard and then try to formulate again that next step. Because it seems like for some people or for most people, especially when it comes to startups or to entrepreneurship, there is this, sometimes there's this fear of failure or fear of what am I, if I'm going to be laughed out of the room, 
I think what you're saying is take some have take some risk, but also be more risk tolerant of course, of course, but also evaluate those those steps before you actually start executing. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, there's a in my mind anyway, there's a really great hack to starting companies, and it has to do with the consistency theory. So consistency theory is this idea of if you if you publicly or even privately with others share something that you will do something Mm -hmm. you want to be consistent with your actions and your words so that the next time you see that person and they ask you about oh hey how is that thing you're doing that there's some progress so one hack i like to suggest to people thinking about starting a business if they're serious is literally just give it a name come up with a name for the company for the product so that when you're having conversations with people about it, it's not some abstract idea. It's something tangible and concrete. Because when you have something tangible and concrete that feels real, it makes it easier to hold yourself accountable for progress. So I think just one tip that I think has, at least for me, gone a, gone a long way in terms of holding myself accountable in the earliest stages when things are still very questionable. It's so questionable. It's like, oh, Eric, what about that podcast? Oh, that podcast? Oh, yeah, I had an idea. But again, putting like Worthy for 30 and this is what it's about. And these are the types of people that I want to bring on. Again, it was sequential to your point. I think that's great advice is putting a name on it. So it doesn't sound amorphous. Okay, what is it? What's this idea? No, it's I put a stamp on it. It's, it's I put it by putting a name on it. So switching gears a little bit, you mentioned you mentioned you're, you're advising, you're mentoring other startups and other founders. One of which I mentioned, Jeff Ragavan, is City Row. So we'd love to hear what is your criteria for investing, or if it's not investing, advising or mentoring founders who are getting off the ground or who are scaling. Yeah. City Row is a great example because the founder of City Row, founder CEO Helene, has worked with us at Buddy Media. Great human, great entrepreneur, got to work with her up close and personal. So for me, it was, I think that was her first check. It was, and she could have, on anything. She could have been selling steak knives and I would have invested. So for me, the most important thing that I look for are the people. Like, are they going to pull this off? Are they going to be curious? Are they going to commit and put in the time and hard work, especially at the early stages, because things will no doubt evolve and iterate. So for me, that's the most important is people. But in general, the things I look for are the classic course race jockey. So the horse's product is the product, something that's unique as a differentiated jockey as the entrepreneur, is this person the right person for this moment, for this domain? And then the race itself, is the market big enough, interesting enough? Does it have room to grow? And there's no, I don't have a kind of definitive playbook. It's like, I'll know it when I see it. And that could be at the earliest stages, pre-idea even, could be just a person looking to do a company, which I've done before, or it can be pre-IPO or IPO or publicly traded companies when I would get involved. So it really depends, but there's no, uh, there's no single playbook for it. There's no single playbook, but it's, again, it, it goes back to the people, the person, so that you're backing. So is, is there, Helene aside, some of the other entrepreneurs that you've backed, is there, I wouldn't say like an X factor, but are there certain like characteristics? Are there certain, yeah, you said curiosity, but in terms of like core fundamental values, is this person trustworthy? Does this person have integrity? Is this person, to what you were saying about consistency, is this person going to follow through based on what they've said? So we'd love to understand, again, because it sounds like you have, Dan has his core fundamental values. 
Are you making sure that your core fundamental values align with the people you're backing or supporting? Yeah, hundred percent. There could be amazing people out there that if don't if they don't share my values, then there's inherently friction or likely friction in that relationship. And what's the point? Life is short. Mm-hmm. It's not only about trying to generate returns. So the things I look for are pretty obvious. Are they good humans? I don't want to work with assholes. Are they curious? Are they empathetic with them, with customers, with the problem? Do they have experience with the problem? Do they have high EQs? Actually, to me, more important than IQ, because if you cannot put yourself in the shoes and empathize with the customers and the problems, then there's no way you'll be able to solve said problem. Being able to iterate quickly and adapt are important. And then the last thing is I look for exceptionality. So has this proven demonstrated in their life at some point, some moment of exceptionality or success where they really stand out and above and beyond people in their peer group. And I think those are roughly the ingredients that I look for. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So be, being exceptional, being empathetic, having an high EQ, because it's funny, you mentioned Twitter, you mentioned social media, and again, more of glorification of the ends of starting a business or starting a new business and seeing it go public or being acquired, but not really seeing the means to the end. There's also chatter, at least from what I've seen, is some, especially for VCs who are backing these startups, are looking for founders to fit a certain mold. Do they come from a great school? Do they work at Google or Facebook? Or do they work in finance before they take the meeting? And then once they have the meeting and the founders present their idea, then they... Um, they combine, okay, the experience, the college pedigree, and then the potential of an entrepreneur. What you're saying is, yeah, that, those are important. But what really is very important is, again, is putting yourself in the customer's shoes or the person who's going to be buying the product or service that you're presenting, which I think, which is huge because as it, being in this fast-paced world that we're in, there's a lot of, yes, a lot of iteration, but it's also a lot of feedback. I'd love to understand from a feedback standpoint, has there been any sort of constructive feedback that you've received over the, this arc of 20 companies that you've helped start that helped mold or refine your outlook on how to either you starting a business or supporting someone else's business? Yeah, great question. But actually, before that question, you said something that's really interesting that I wanted to just touch on because I think it's important. You mentioned VCs often look for people that fit a mold. They have that Ivy League pedigree or they've been at the Googles of the world. When it comes to investing, obviously those look safe bets. Those are the consensus bets because on Mm -hmm. paper, they look good. They've done it before. In investing, there's consensus right, consensus wrong, non-consensus right, non-consensus wrong. You make money and have your returns by being non-consensus right. Meaning you're looking where most people are not. And in the case of being an investor, obviously most people are going to look at the obvious repeat founder or the Ivy League kind of HBS person. But where the, I think more fun and opportunities are all of those diamonds in the rough. It's finding the Michael Jordans before they're Michael Jordans. So then how do you do that? And that comes back to the, what are the ingredients that you're looking for with that person? For what it's worth, for all the people out there that don't have those experiences or track records or pedigrees, that is a competitive advantage in my opinion. And you're the underdog and makes you work harder and stick out. In fact, when we were building Spinback, I remember feedback feedback we got was you guys are too young. 
you haven't done enterprise B2B sales before. And in fact, you need somebody like this. And in fact, you got a real example of the number one B2B enterprise rep at PayPal. And we flew him out to New York to meet with him. And he was like, you actually don't need me. You guys know what you're doing. So I think the biggest piece of feedback or advice that I've been given or maybe internalized over the years from all of this is the most important thing is um, who you surround yourself with, right? It's who you spend your time with, the people that you'll be working with. And for me, that means trying to find people better than me. I always try to be the dumbest person in the room and get out of their way when I find the person that's better than me at that task or thing or initiative and just really act as an enabler for that person. And in the cases where I've gotten that, it's worked really well. In the cases where I've not gotten that, it hasn't worked well. So people, getting people right and making that the biggest centerpiece is the biggest thing that I've learned over the years. Gotcha. No, that's no, that's a great perspective. Again, great context. But I know we're running up on time here. But one question, and I really want to make sure we talk about this, is something that you're doing outside of work, which is the Right Hebrew Academy. And it seems like a culmination of your life experiences, your business, and the impact that your grandparents had on you. So I'd love for you to talk more about the Hebrew Academy and what led up to, again, the endowment. Yeah. So my parents are, or sorry, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. So they survived Nazi Germany and the war, and they came here after the war and started a chicken farm. And I would hear stories of my grandfather every day from Tom's River, New Jersey, driving two hours into New York City to deliver eggs, and then two hours every day, pretty much seven days a week. And so at a young age, that upbringing was really important to them and subsequently my parents and then and me, which culminated in then putting me in what was in a Jewish day school called Solomon Schechter, which is where I went to school. For me, that carries in really my day-to-day thinking about how fortunate and lucky I am to be here, considering how many people are not just due to that time period and what those people had to go through and persevere through. So the Right Keeper Academy is really totally not about me at all. It's really paying it forward to the next generation based on what I was fortunate to receive from my grandparents and my parents. And so the thought that an education was really important to my, especially Jewish education was really important to my grandparents who were not afforded that during the war, to think about this idea that now, hopefully many dozens, if not hundreds of kids could get that education that they could not receive due to anti-Semitism in the Holocaust to me is really important. And with that generation of Holocaust survivors dying out, and we see the rise of anti-Semitism again in the world just the past few weeks, there has to be a moral compass and counterbalance to all the hate and rhetoric we see in the world today. And I think providing and ensuring a school like this one carries on and continues to help educate people on the right moral compass is just more than ever mission critical. No, absolutely. And it's life coming full circle. Again, the impact that your grandparents had and on your parents and then on you and paying it forward is, is, again, it goes beyond, yes, starting a business is great and selling hundreds of millions of dollars worth of product is great, but it's also some of those higher plane opportunities that now 
that you're afforded to, but also that just reinforces the importance of to give back and to do good while you're doing well. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody asked me, so how does it feel to have a bunch of money now? And my answer was not as good as it feels to give it away. And the reality is this game we play with business and entrepreneurship is fun. It is amazing. I love it. But there's no point unless you can leverage all of that great work to pay it forward and do good in the world, as cheesy as that sounds, because God knows we can use a hell of a lot more good things happening. I would just remind everybody that whatever you're going through in terms of business building, whatever journey you're on, just have the perspective that there are other people out there in much worse shape than you. And so if you could do even one single act of kindness to pay it forward, I promise you that will feel way better than anything you're doing at work. And that's a great way to, to end the conversation. Dan, I really appreciate your time. You've gave incredible perspective on your journey and the impact and what the people who are listening can do to do a little bit, if they already are doing good, how keeping that in perspective and the impact that it has on the world around them. So I really do appreciate your time this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to see you. Yes, likewise. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast on your favorite listening platform or subscribe to the show Substack so you never miss an episode.